Welcome to the Youth Sports Experience. My guest today is one of my favorite people in basketball. Hey, Paul. Good to be here, Mark. Thanks so much. Yeah, so I'm really excited to have you on here. You have so much to offer. Like I said, you're one of my favorite guys in basketball. You know, I've seen so many people out there that call themselves skill coaches, player development coaches. You know, you've had a progression in your career as a basketball coach, and that's where you are now. But what I love about what you do is you teach things that make sense. You know, things that pertain to the game. And I don't know, has it been an evolution for you? I mean, we'll find out as we talk to you. Um, but I love your energy on the court. I love the way that you communicate with kids and parents and you break things down in a way that's appropriate for them to understand. And then I saw your entrepreneurial side, you know, when the pandemic hit and everybody else is shut down, man, you got bigger than ever. Uh, I mean, you had ball handling sessions that probably had close to a thousand kids, thousand players on there. Um, It probably grew bigger than you knew what to do with. So this is Paul Easton, and Paul, welcome to the Youth Sports Experience. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. Yeah, so did it grow bigger than you know what to do with? I mean, how did you manage, I mean, getting yeah. that many people on a Zoom? It was crazy. So I was very, I was a novice to Zoom. Um, I didn't really know how everything worked. I used it for work a few times. So what I wanted to do was I took a little while off when COVID first started. Uh, I kind of caught my breath a little bit. And then I realized that I was a lot of parents that I spoke to, the kids were really struggling with structure. And especially in this this area, the DMV area, you know, it's very, kids are so used to going out of lacrosse practice, then basketball, then swim, then tutoring. And there's just so much stuff going on. They went from all that to zero. So not only were the kids struggling with their structure, I think the parents were kind of struggling a little bit as well. So what I wanted to do was offer some Zoom classes and some some trainers, you know, hiked up the prices and it was -hmm. was kind of sketchy and you had to kind of weigh on the side of being safe. So what I did was um, I created um, just free workouts and there were no hoop required. So people can do them in their homes or in a court if they've got they bring a phone there, their backyard, whatever. And um, we opened it up on Zoom. So I sent out to kind of my following. And I think the first time we did it, we had like 400 people. And I was like, this is unbelievable. So when I saw the numbers, like how many I had, I, I couldn't believe it. So clearly people were passing out the Zoom codes to other people that I didn't know. So I started posting about it online. And then at one point, I had to buy a bigger package on Zoom because I bought the, uh, the standard package. Mm-hmm. There's 100 people. So I, I upgraded it for, for more than that because I knew I'd get a little bit more. In the end, I had to upgrade it to almost 1,000. Wow. And we would do that. I'd put it on. I'd have my, that on my laptop. I'd have my cell phone and I put that to Instagram live so people could watch it on there. They had also put another phone and put it on Facebook live. And overall we were getting like over 3000 people every workout. Wow. And then what there was, I recorded it as well and put it on YouTube. So if anyone missed it, because there's people in foreign countries or different time zones and they could watch it on YouTube and it's still on YouTube on the Paul Easton basketball YouTube. And, um, the feedback I got from it was just immense. I mean, you know, your son was on it, which was great to see. Yep. Um, players that I knew, there was players from all over the world that have stayed in touch with me. And it was just, it was amazing to see. Like, I, I really felt like I was impacting people in a big way. And yeah. I was just so happy. 
Yeah, and I got to say, I mean, I said it was entrepreneurial, but I mean, that would imply you were making money. You really weren't making money. In fact, you probably lost money. Uh, I lost money. I was paying my Zoom subscription. I was losing money. <laughs> um, but, you know, I mean, I, I mean, people were asking for T-shirts and stuff. So we did the, the fun drill, which is a four-minute dribble burnout at the end. Because I want the kids to kind of see it as their, their game time at the end and challenge them. So people were asking for shirts. So I made some T-shirts, and, you know, we sold a bunch. Um, wasn't a great profit, but it probably bad balanced out the zoom costs and the camera costs and stuff like that so what i'm thinking about is you were talking about how many people on there up to three thousand, right i mean so you really try to make it personal and say a few names while you're doing it but how the heck do you scroll through that many people on a zoom and mention some names you know and make it that personal experience and then to follow up on that there had to be some wacky backgrounds that you saw. I mean, was there anything especially memorable that you were like, whoa, this is just too funny? There was one guy once who was watching it. I think he was legitimately a coach. And my father, it's pretty cool. My father, who lives in Scotland, because of the time difference and obviously the distance, he doesn't get to see me coach so much. So he watches my videos, but he would stay up late and tune in for the lives. And that really meant a lot to me. So my father could see my work and he would kind of give me feedback afterwards. But one time he alerted to me, he took a screenshot, there was a coach who was just watching. And, I, and again, I looked him up. I think he was a legit coach in some, some European country, but he had his shirt off. <laughs> and he was just kind of laying on the couch watching. And I was like, that's probably not appropriate to be watching little Turn kids. the camera off, man. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. If you're not participating, turn the camera off. Yeah, but I never saw it again. And my dad, he was playing detective afterwards. He was searching for him. But again, there, I don't think there was any foul play. But it was definitely interesting. But I'll tell you something. One time, like there was, there was one girl in Colombia who used to do it on the weekends. And the backdrop where she was, you could see like, all the mountainside. The Andes. I right? used to always go to her just to show that. It yeah. was amazing. Yeah, it was really good. So That really is amazing. It was probably one of my favorite stories of the pandemic. You know, what you created and what was going on there and, and how you pulled it all off. It was good. And then, you know, a, couple, a lot of players would message me afterwards when everyone was back to sports like coach i put in the zoom link and it's not there i was like listen it was just you know it was for the pandemic you know hopefully we don't have to go back to that but that's what it was for right so before we get into some of your training uh briefly give me your story you mentioned your dad's watching in scotland so you tipped off you know where it all started but i mean i can't imagine um what's your dad's reaction when you tell him that you're packing up leaving scotland to go be a basketball coach I was 24 and I visited Morgan Wooten's basketball camp through a good friend of mine, Ross Hutton, um, gave me the contact. And I came across, I fell in love with it. It was like the basketball mecca for me. And I got the opportunity to move across here and start working for Morgan's son, Joe Wooten, at Bishop O'Connell High School. And I was so grateful to be around Joe Wooten, his father, Morgan, and so many great other coaches. And uh, became a, I became a high school coach for six years. Then I became a head high school coach at um, St. James School in Maryland. And then I tried for a lot of college jobs, um, other high school jobs, never worked out. And then I, I started training. But my parents, um, they were supportive. But it's funny, my dad is, is very instrumental in the, in, the, in the equation. I used to work in a bank. I was a, a, a loans manager in a bank. I really had no idea what I was doing. And um, So you told people no a lot. Pretty much. Or the computer. <laughs> I just echoed what Right, right, right. So I was coaching basketball, I was coaching under 16s, under 18s, uh, development, senior men. And then when I got this opportunity to come to America, I was going to take a month and come over here. 
And at that time, the bank had put me on this, this course that would fast track me to be a manager. And my dad was excited for me. I was kind of happy. And I said to my dad, I want to take a month off. And he was like, Paul, that's not a good move. And my bank manager said, I can give you two weeks. I can't give you a month. But I was just, you know, really bent on going for a month. So the bank manager said, look, you're going to lose your place in the junior bank manager accelerated program. So my dad, he's a blue collar guy, worked all his days. One, he used to get up, at, I think he said work at like six. He got up at like five. And we debated all night for like, until like, must have been like two o'clock in the morning. He got up in three hours. And he was telling me I'd be a fool to leave. You know, why does America need a Scottish basketball coach? <laughs> and he's got a point. And we, we kind of not argued, but we had a great debate about it. So I went, I was still, you know, I was still bullhead. I was like, this is what I want to do. He was like, it's not a good move. So I went to bed. And then the next morning I woke up, I woke up at like maybe eight o'clock getting ready for work. And right beside my pillow was a note. And it was from my dad. And he had wrote on it before he left. He said, who am I to stand in the way of your dreams? Wow. Wow. Once I got that note, you couldn't tell me nothing. I booked the flight tickets that night. (laughs) I mean, that's perspective. I mean, we're dads, right? So we get it. You know, I mean, that he didn't want to stand in the way of your dreams. And he was able to put maybe his own, um, what should I say, doubts aside. That's tough. That's tough as a parent. It is. It really is. And he probably didn't want to see me squander an opportunity. But you know, I was 24 years old. You know, young, single, happy-go-lucky. It was the time to take the chance. Yeah, uh, we're glad we did. So when you're in the gym or you're on a campus of a school, I mean, let me be honest. Like, do people think you're the soccer coach? (laughs) Soccer, (laughs) soccer, or golf? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, You know, I don't sound American, obviously. Um, I don't have an impressive basketball physique. You know, I, I played kind of club level back home. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Scottish basketball is on the rise, but it's not like Germany or France or Spain or anything. We're very like we're in the B level uh, there, very much in the A level. So for me, um, you know, I was I found my niche over in Scotland and I love basketball. I worked my butt off. Um, I love my teammates, but I knew coaching was for me early. So mm-hmm. for me, I've always saw myself as a teacher of the game. Yeah. Um maybe in a way it made you work harder to prove yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. I actually wrote an article on this today. I think that when I first came across to America, I had this perception of how I was going to be, what it was going to be. And I slowly realized, you know, as you know, that the high school basketball in the DMV area is, I mean, no disrespect to any other States, but it, it has got to be up there like top three. Yeah. And um, when I came to it, the fast, the, the fast pace, the style of play, my conference took a big hit. I was like, oh boy, should I have, should I have left, you know? And I had to kind of find a way to find my own niche and, c- and create my own path. So for me, it was, it was videotape. It was game film. Mm-hmm. Back then, this is before huddle and crossover. People weren't watching as much game film in high school as they are now. So no one was doing that at Bishop O'Connell. So I made it my job to review every game tape. Uh, sit with players as a team individually, do scouting reports. And I became so like engrossed in, in, in learning from film. It helped my knowledge of the game. And I became an asset to the program I was working at. Right. So all that background had to really help you in the position you're in today. Absolutely. And, you know, how do you, um, as a trainer, having actually coached on a team, right? 
And I don't even know. I mean, do you like it when I call you trainer? I don't know what the right word is. Uh, I don't, but I get it because I do train players. I prefer a teacher, but I get okay. it. Okay. No, I get that too. I get that too. Um, so how did having that actual coaching background mold you as a basketball teacher? When I first, I don't want to train at first. And I was ready to, I went through a divorce and I was ready to give basketball a little bit of a break. And a friend of mine said, hey, Paul, i got a couple of kids that I train with and I'm actually moving to a different state with my job. I was like, nah, I'm not interested. He's like, Paul, they, you know, they pay 50 bucks an hour. And at the time, I wasn't making much money in my job. So I was like, okay, cool. So I started working with these couple of kids. And within a couple of months, I think they won like the, the player of the year or most improved in their rec league. So all the parents were like, hey, who is, you know, who is so-and-so working with? And all of a sudden, my client base kept growing. And I was got all these kids. And I was just teaching basic stuff that I knew would work in games that coaches would look for. And then when I got into the training world, there was kind of a little bit of a doubt or hate around me because mm -hmm. I didn't really match the mold of a trainer. I didn't mm -hmm. have a high playing profile. I wasn't demonstrating the moves. So I said to myself, how can I get ahead in this game, even though I can't do this stuff like maybe a former player could? I said, well, they never coached before. I did. And as you, as you well know, Mark, like you can be a great player. That doesn't mean you're a great teacher of the game because things that became easy to you or things you work for aren't always easy to teach somebody else or understand why they don't get it. Me as a not very good player, I can understand when someone can't get the footwork. You know, I can understand that stuff. So for me, I just made sure that I was teaching the way I knew how. Like Because I know, I remember when I was at O'Connell, you can tell a player what to do. You can, you can show them on the court. But if they don't understand what you mean, they're not going to do it. So that's where film work comes in and really slowing things down and breaking it down, as much, like breaking it down bit by bit. And that to was the point to your point. You may be the smartest basketball coach, you know, in the world, but if you can't teach it, it's really irrelevant. It's really what the player can absorb. I remember when I first started, there was a couple of uh, parents that called me and they asked for my playing resume. And I said, I, I don't really have one, but this is where I've coached. And they said, no, we want to train with a player who's actually played. And I remember at the time, it kind of hurt me. It kind of mm -hmm. hurt me. I was like, mm -hmm. am I in the wrong business? Right. But then once I started going and seeing the impact I had on players, I, I just knew I was headed in the right direction. And there are some people that won't understand that. And that's okay. For example, I know nothing about lacrosse. So if my son were to play lacrosse, and here there was this all-star player that played in college, I may be drawn to him, you know? So it really depends on what you're around. But a lot of players that I've coached who go elsewhere usually come back, which is a good mm -hmm. sign, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, when you see like a the lacrosse example, that guy's got instant credibility in a way. Mm -hmm. You know, when he shows up to teach, people just assume that he knows what he's doing. Exactly. But, I mean, sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, how have you evolved now? I mean, you've been doing this for how many years now? I think it's going on seven almost, almost seven. Right. And you're probably a different teacher today than you were seven years ago, right? Yeah. I mean, and it, I it, it's your that. personal journey, it's your professional journey, and it's the game and it's evolvement. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, you have to adapt. If you don't adapt, you die. And I think that um, for me, the turning point was my first year in training, I remember teaching players every counter you can imagine. Like I would overload them at the workouts. And I'll never forget this. I went to a player's game and I was excited to watch him play. And I went to the game and he played, I don't know, 20 minutes at least. He scored two points. He was like one from five, zero from two from the line and had seven turnovers. Mm. And I remember leaving the gym embarrassed. And I said to myself, 
I am not helping this player at all. And ever, I had a long think about that night. And I remember I couldn't wait to get him back in the gym. And I, for lack of a better term, I dumbed down everything. Like I, we focus on catching on your strong, on your strong foot, jabbing, keeping the pivot down. Um, you know, how to, how to escape out of a trap, like just really broke it down. And I think the more I've evolved, it's almost like the less I teach. Mm-hmm. The less I teach and more I emphasize is where I go. Sometimes players are going to my workouts and I can tell they're kind of bored because they're not doing all the fancy stuff they see online or they're not doing the latest stuff. I'm a real stickler for the fundamentals. Mm-hmm. What age range are you working with? For me, my I, I would say seventh grade and up is kind of my... My forty, I would say. I, I work with younger players, mm-hmm. but I think that I'm I, players sixth, seventh grade. They really start to understand a different side of it, and that's kind of where I I come. But I, I have worked with younger players as well, though. But I would say for me, the averages I work with is probably seventh all the way through to twelfth or eleventh. So seventh grade um, for boys, and I guess girls are ahead, uh, but that's right about when puberty hits. And you know, when I talk to other parents, you know, in new sports, I try to politely say, you know what, really nothing before puberty matters that much. It, it's not a great predictor of what's going to happen after puberty. Yep. Um, so I, do you deal with that somewhat, you know, in, you know, what's age appropriate? Uh, what's the physical and mental maturity of the kids that you're teaching? Yeah, because I feel like a lot of players who are in the, uh, you know, the fifth, sixth, whatever the grade they're in, for them, it's more about just getting a basis of what the skill is, you know, just getting shots up, getting movement, mobility, understanding certain things. But to really break down the game, like you said, that mental or, or emotional maturity might not be there yet. Hmm. And that's where you can see the biggest impact. Like I've noticed with players that I've worked from seventh grade up, seeing them now as 10th and 11th graders, they're really starting to get what we're, the, the meaning of things we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, it's, it's trial and error with each player. And you've got to, you've got to judge where they're at emotionally and, and mature wise and intelligence wise. But um, I, I really enjoy seventh and above. Yeah. Um, have you changed as the game has changed? You know, now we see, you know, the three is much more prolific. Um, some people will say that it's more of a one-on-one game in some cases. Uh, has that affected, you know, what you're teaching or not so much? It has to a certain degree, um, but I'll, I'll say this. If I'm not too familiar with the move, I don't usually teach it. Like, I mean, the step back, I, I like. I'm just adding certain things to it, like the step back, hesitate, then cross. But if it's new to me, I really take my time. And one thing I do is when I work with my pro players from overseas, I'll speak to them a lot about, do you use this move? Is it effective? How do you use it? And I'll watch them. But for me, it's all about shooting. Like every workout I do now, if we have an hour workout, you're doing at least 30 minutes of shooting. Like mm-hmm. Everything ends in, in shooting. But I will say this, the one thing I will not let go of, I'm still a fan of the mid-range. The mid-range. Yeah. I think it will come back. I understand it. I understand dribble drive, basket or three. I totally get it. And I love threes. I'm all about the three. But I still teach the mid-range. I don't have that change you were in love with Jimmy Butler in last year's uh, NBA playoffs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I like, I love watching guys like Devin Booker, uh, CJ mm-hmm. McCollum, like guys who uh, Chris Paul, who still um, get a lot out of that mid range. Mm-hmm. You mentioned shooting. Okay, how much is shooting an innate ability? There's something 
uh, instinctive, innate about touch that you know you put on the ball. Um, you can teach the right form, right? But how much can you really teach shooting? I think you're right. It's definitely a feel. It's like the floater. Same thing. I've had great guards who have played Division One, you know, and just can't do the floater. They suck at it. And I think it's, it's a touch thing. But I think with shooting, you're right. Getting them early is always a good way because you can set those those mechanics early. Um, it's hard. This is the this is an issue I see. Once players start playing at a competitive level of AAU, they're very hesitant as are their parents to change their shot and take mm-hmm. step back because it means for a slight while they're not going to perform as well. Mm-hmm. You don't want to take that step back to take a leap forward. I've noticed yeah. that a lot. So I think a lot of it is some kids just have a good touch. Um, but I think everything can be taught. You know, I think everything can be taught in a sense. And also confidence is huge, right? I mean, huge, huge. I suppose the, the, the confidence for me is what I, I always replace the word confidence with trust. Okay. And I say to players, do you trust yourself? Don't right. get caught up in what confidence is. Do you trust yourself? And if you trust yourself, that's where you've got to really believe in what you're doing, no matter what's happening around you. Right. Um, if there's people out there watching, parents especially, and they could be anywhere and they want to find a good basketball skills teacher. Uh, what would be the things you would look for? Um, the things that tell you that this guy knows what he's doing? Well, first of all, I'd probably show them your article you wrote because you hit <laughs> <laughs> So make sure you put a link to that. Sure. I think from my perspective, number one is someone who is, well, maybe not in order here, but number one, someone who. If you're trying there, the the biggest review is it should be your child afterwards. You should be seeing what your child gets out of it. Someone that cares about your child's development, someone who's going to push them, someone who who really wants to focus on their fundamentals, not just the workout where you're going through with 10 players getting shots up. They really want to hone in on your kid, what they have to work on. So I would say caring about your kid, pushing your kid, and then really caring about their development. That's the three things I would really look for in someone. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things not to look for, but those are the things you look for, I would say. Right. I mean, I've seen all sorts of stuff. I mean, we were, you know, being in a gym one time and there were small kids there and, you know, the guy's got his uh, Bluetooth speaker set up and it's just playing like horrible music. And <laughs> I'm like, I can't believe this guy can't figure out that you shouldn't be playing this profane music, you know, probably not at all in the gym, but, with, especially with little kids walking around there. and it was, But it never really registered with them. Then when you talked about groups, uh, I had the experience with swim lessons where the first time I took my two boys to swim lessons, there were probably eight to 10 kids and there was one teacher. Mm-hmm. And I did the math in my head, you know, how much of the teacher's time was each boy going to get? Yeah. So I found for swimming at the start, a much smaller group, maybe even one-on-one, was a much better situation for them to learn the basics. Absolutely. I mean, one-on-one is good. I think that it's got like players that just do groups. They don't get the chance to be one-on-one and have correction and specific detail. But then if you just do one-on-one, you kind of lose that competitive aspect as well. So I think both are necessary, but I agree with you. I think with groups, if you've got one coach, I think you should be trying to keep it to six to eight players max. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. so if they're all skill level age appropriate. If you've got a guy who's playing, you know, University of Maryland, a kid in middle school and a kid in elementary school, 
that's a tough workout for any coach. I don't care who you are. So it's got to be age appropriate where you are. But you've got to have in a small group. I will take a player out of the out of the drill, explain to them, take them to a side basket, work on whatever we are, knowing that the rest of the drill will run smooth and players are getting reps up. Um, so and then if I have a big group, I usually bring in an assistant so we can break into two groups um, and give that that feedback one on one. How do you decide how long you're going to go? I would think smaller kids, smaller session. Usually, I mean, I usually say an hour, but I can go to an hour and 15 minutes. But And you factor in, like, little kids need more breaks. Um, you so if, if the energy is down, you can do a competitive um, drill. For me, I usually start with a stationary drill so I can break the details of it down, the why, the when, the how to use it. Then we'll do it against a cone or, or nothing. So you, get, you can kind of get into motion with it. Then we'll do it against the defender. And if we can, we'll then go live. So you're doing the whole part of it. Because, you know, you can practice things, but then you get in a game, it's a, it's a different story. You've got game speed. You've got the yes. external factors. It's tough. And you can represent defense in a workout. You can represent game speed, but nothing compares to a game. That is the single biggest thing for me. And I don't know all the answers, uh, but what transfers to the game? you know, when you're working out, it's got to transfer to the game. Otherwise, you know, it's just like a halftime show. Absolutely. And I said, I think a lot of players, when they go through the reps, you've got to go game speed. Once you've got the fundamental down, you've got to go game speed. You've got to work on reaction. I know you and I have spoken a lot about that, like read and react. I'm big on that. Even if it's something simple as when a player catches the ball, you yell out one or two or a color, whatever it may be. So they have to quickly think and react or you maybe show as a defender. Because if the player is just doing things methodically, when they get into a game, they don't have that fluidity, how to read and react to it. And as we know, basketball, like most team sports, are all reactionary. Yes. I mean, I think it's we were both fans of the Chris Oliver uh, podcast, and he calls it basketball decision training, right? I mean, yeah. basketball and soccer, to me, are like real decision-making sports. I mean, um, coaches matter, right? But once you're out there on the floor or on the field, I mean, you're making your own decisions. You're not a robot. When I was when I was uh, head coaching, I was far from perfect. But one thing I would never do is, if a player drove into the lane and made a decision, I would never harp on that decision. Mm -hmm. And maybe the film room afterwards, I would show him or her like where they could have made a better pass, where they should have you know backed out, whatever. But during the game, I tried not to go too hard on decisions because they have to make a decision and grow from it. Now, if they didn't rebound or box out or play defense, then I was all over them. But when it was coming to making decisions, I, I treaded very carefully with that. Do you think you've gotten better at, you know, incorporating that into your workouts and making your workouts, you know, transfer to the game, pertain to the actual game? Because in a game, it's unscripted. There's variables that come up that you can't control. Absolutely. If I'm working individually, I've usually watched some of their games. So we'll, we'll um, kind of reenact game situations and I'll do it. And I'll say, do you recognize this? And they'll be like, ah, I do. Mm. You know, so we do a lot of that and then we'll do things they may come across, different scenarios they can add to it. In groups, we, we do that as well. But I would say, yes, we, have, we definitely incorporate the read and react. I'm big on that. Once we've mastered the fundamental or once we've got comfortable with it. And the second thing is I, I'm all about making it game relatable. Because if it's not, it, like you say, it's, it's, it's almost a waste of time. Yeah. And I'm big on um, playing some one-on-one, two-on-two, three-on-three, those things where the floor is open. And, you know, I'm not a coach, right? But I coach my kids' uh, Catholic school uh, fifth grade team. 
And I found when I put segments in practice of two on two or three on three, it forced the, the more beginning kids to have to handle the ball more. And I found that they got better because they couldn't defer. Huge fan of three on three. Because when you play five and five, the weaker players can hide yes. and they don't do anything. And the ball dominant players just dominate the ball. Three on three, everyone's involved. You can space out the floor. You can work on, you know, backdoor, handoff, screen away, rim cut, these things. And it, it just, from a player, they can see it much more. And believe it or not, once you get that three on three going and they start to understand, read, react, how to fill, once you put five players in, it becomes easier for them. They start to see more of what's happening. You wrote a really great email uh, recently and addressed um, some parenting things. Um, and I think if I remember correctly, one of the uh, number one things you hear is I want my kid to be more aggressive. And, and so I call it the fog of parenting. Mm -hmm. And what it is, is you see your kid for what you want them to be rather than what they really are. And okay. sometimes those two don't line up and sometimes they may never get to where you want them to be. Uh, so that's a very hard thing. And I actually, I think coaches fall into it too when they go recruiting, when they go evaluate players. It's that, it's that fog that we all try to see through. Absolutely. It's like, you know, perception is everything. And in life, it's about adapting to things. If we hang on to what they're supposed to be, that's not how life works. You know, life changes at the drop of a hat. And we have to adapt and find a way to be happy and make it work for us. And I think with a lot of parents is they put time and effort into their kids and they love them. And I don't think any parent wakes up and says, I want to be selfish and all about my kid. I don't think any parent does that. They love their child and they want them to maximize their potential. And maybe it's making up for what they could have been or what they wish they had more of. I don't fault parents for that. But I think a lot of the time you are absolutely correct. They have a perception of what should be instead of what actually is. And if they could take away that fog or those goggles and see what it actually is and focus on that and improve in that, they could probably actually get further ahead than rather than fighting with these perceptions, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I see all the time, the most common thing is, he's, oh, you know, Mark's just not being aggressive enough. You need to be more aggressive. That's a, that's, a, that's a frustration by the parent and it's confusion by the player. Because what does that mean, be more aggressive? Does that mean run through the wall? Does that mean jack up every shot you touch? Does that mean punch someone in the face? Like, <laughs> what does it mean? I think we have to simplify what we mean. Hey, Mark, remember we worked on the jump stop and the contact finish? Or when you come off the screen, look in. That's what you need to do more of. Be more assertive. I want you to assert yourself and do that more. That's, that's, that's the way I try to explain it. I think that helps the player be more single focused, you know, single tasking on what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Are you seeing anything different? You know, because you work with girls and boys. Um, you teach them the same uh, you do it a little bit differently for each. And then I could say, or uh, is there any difference between boy parents and girl parents? Um, honestly, the, the short answer is there isn't really a difference. I started first coaching girls with Paul, the six high school when coach Allen's good friend of mine, and obviously a mutual friend of ours, he invited me to come work out with his team. And they were like ranked number five or number three in the country. And I was like, Oh yeah, that'd be great. And I remember pulling up to Paul, the six and I was like, Oh boy. I've never coached girls before. And I actually got quite nervous. And I walked in the gym. I never forget it was the, the player, Michaela, I forget her name, but she played at Notre Dame. Mm -hmm. And Big Bomb. Lamp. Yep. Yeah. And Michaela Baum. Yep. I think she was like six foot four. And yep. she came over and shook my hand. And I couldn't 
believed how tall she was and how long she was, how physical she was. And I was like, wow. And she's like, we're excited to train with you, coach. And I was like, oh boy. And I just remember how receptive they were to coaching and how focused they were. And that's not all players, obviously. Right. But um, I think with boys, you definitely have the testosterone going. Um, sometimes the lack of attention to detail, uh, rushing things, um, especially that 12, 13, 14-year-old range. They can't take a while to settle down. Um, but honestly, I do the same drills with both. Um, very much the same drills with both because I'm so detailed and fundamentally focused. Um, I feel like, I don't want to misspeak here. Most of it depends on the player. I think a lot of girls are more open to feedback than boys are sometimes. Boys can sometimes get quite defensive really early. Uh, you've kind of got to come in with a softer, more gentle approach where sometimes girls can be very open to more feedback. That's what Interesting. I Interesting. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Paul the sixth, and um, I just got to say the Maryland Terps are benefiting from two of those players, uh, Ashley Wusu and Mimi Collins, who have just had terrific college runs at Maryland so far, and we're looking for a lot more. I mean, Ashley is just hands down one of the most naturally just, I'm not going to say natural gifted because she, she works so hard for what she's got, but mm-hmm. her natural feel for the game is incredible. And she, as you know, is a complete gym rat. I mean, she has, she has worked so hard on her skill set. And I, what, one thing I love about Ashley is she's kind of a stoic demeanor. Yep. Like she's never too up. She's never too down. She's just, she's just Ashley. And of course she's young. She's growing. You know, I saw a lot of her games this year and, and it's all about, you know, experiencing the moment and learning from the moment, but she always impresses me of how calm she stays. Mm-hmm. Has the gap closed at all between um, what you can teach girls to try on the court versus what you can try boys? I think to me, I don't really see a difference. Okay. I don't see a difference. And maybe I've, maybe I've got my <laughs> equal opportunity goggles or fog on. Great. great. I, really, I really don't. Um, no. I, yeah. I, I can't relate it to their game. So no. No. Mm-hmm. Um, trainers now or are a part of the scene, right? I mean, different players have different guys or women that have worked with them. Um, and some become very close confidants, you know, to the player, to the parent, and they are a factor in decision-making for that player. Uh, how do you play that role? And then let's say whatever age you're, you're the kid you're working with is, and maybe things aren't going great at first or whatever. How do you uh, advise them? How do you walk that line between, telling them to stick with it, persevere versus saying, you know what? We might want to make a change here. Exactly. I, I personally, I try to give advice I would give to my own kids. And I, I try and just, I never, I, I don't think I've ever told a player, and I, honest hand of God, I don't think I've ever told a player, you should leave or mm-hmm. you should stay. I don't think I've said either. I think what I've done, and I even, I've even told, you know, close coaches that I'm, I'm coaches that I'm close with. I try and have the player discover it for themselves, even if I know the right answer. Well, there's never a right answer, but you know what I mean. I try and have them level out the pros, the cons, what they want to be remembered for, and so forth. That's what I try and do. But you're right. They are a part of it. I remember when, it, when AAU first started becoming very prevalent, I remember high school coaches just complaining and, and whining about AAU coaches. Oh, they've got too much control, and they're not this, and they're not that, and the kids listen to them. 
Well, of course the kids listen to them because they're not harping on about about being on time for school or homework or grades. And they're going to Las Vegas and Florida and playing. So, of course, it, it's, it's fun for them, you know, and they're building good relationships only through basketball. Right. And I think that when co- a lot of coaches hurt themselves, high school coaches, by not instead of instead of like, interacting with the AU coaches, they kind of went against them. And I think trainers are now in that same kind of gap. Like if you are saying, oh, it's just a trainer, I'm not going to listen to him. You're kind of cutting off a resource. Right. You know, right. I think that you don't have to like the trainer. You, I mean, I don't think Coach K likes every high school coach and every <laughs> coach he talks to. But if Zion Williamson plays for them, they're going to like them. So I think that you've got to be smart about it and not burn bridges. And I think a trainer, like an AAU coach, like a high school coach, can help you. I know that I've said to high school coaches before, they've said, hey, I see you work with, you know, John or whatever, and how's he doing? I saw he's doing good, coach. Is there anything you want me to work with him on? And when you say that, sometimes coaches are like, oh. And they'll say, well, you know, he needs to come better off the ball street going to the left, or he needs to do this, or tell him to keep his head up, or whatever. And I'll try and use it, because that's going to ultimately is going to help the player. Yeah, there's no doubt. And you think about all the time that you spend together, you know, in the gym, whether it's with the player or with the family. And there's probably a lot of, um, you know, open talking, you know, in that time. So you really get to know each other well. You trust each other. And and now they are definitely influential people, you know, with lots of players and they are part of the recruitment process, you know. And honestly, I think um, the way the transfer portal has opened up on the college level, at least maybe even in the high school level, um, you know, they can be a conduit to obtaining a player. Uh, I I don't know how else to say it, but it's reality. I do not doubt it. I do not doubt it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Anything else we haven't covered yet, uh, Paul? Um, No, these are great questions. I'm glad glad to talk about them. Um, I I just think it's, um, I think, you know, one thing you're a big advocate of and we talk about all the time, I think it's just so important to take this deep dive into your child's youth development, their youth sports, because as you know, youth sports, the the experience you have can stay with you for a long time. You know, I mean, just how you are with your relationship with your coach, your relationship having teammates, it can just stay with your child. I mean, I've known players that I played with when I was, you know, 12, 13, 14, that I'm still good friends with today. Right. And I think that it, it, it's so important to get a deep dive and interest in your child's development. And I think it's so important to, to, to stay in that role of being a parent, advising, pushing when you have to, supporting it without trying to take over. You know, that, that's so important. It's hard to do, but it's so important to do. And there's no question there's hard work involved, but it's got to be fun. I mean, the original reason all of us, whether we're fans, players, coaches, the original reason we gravitate towards any sport is because it was fun. That was the original attraction. I'll never forget. I was with uh, an AAU coach and he says to me, these kids don't want to do drills. All they want to do is play. <laughs> I was like, coach, of course they want to play. That's why they do drills. Like Muhammad, I think it was Muhammad Ali. They said he hated every minute of training every minute of training that he knew he had to do it in order to fight, you know? And it's like, that's what training is. Like you've, you can argue there's fun in competing. There's mm-hmm. fun in winning, but there's a process that goes into it. A lot of parents will say to me, Oh, you know, Mark's losing love for the game. He's not enjoying it anymore. Well, I'll tell you why he's not enjoying it because of the external factors, perceptions and expectations that you and other people are putting on him. That's why. Because when he picked up that ball, he wasn't thinking about getting recruited. 
He wasn't thinking about being ranked. He wasn't thinking about scoring X amount of points. He played the game because it was fun. You've got to try and keep that alive as much as possible. Absolutely. Absolutely. Paul, you do most of your work in the DMV area, right? I mean, people could be watching from anywhere, but if people want to check you out and find your stuff, uh, whether it's online or on social media, where can they find you? Uh, best thing is pauleastonbasketball.com. It's a website and it's got everything on there, links to all my social media, pauleastonbasketball.com. And my Instagram channel, which I'm probably more inept with, is at drills and skills b-ball. But again, it's all on the website. And Mark, one last thing, I've got actually exciting news. Next week, fingers crossed, I am releasing the Paul Easton Basketball app. And yeah, I'm so excited about this. All right. What it's going to be is it's a subscription-based you get 20 plus drills a month. But here's the kicker. You don't just do the drills. You can do the drills and there's an option on the app for you to record yourself doing the drill and you can send it back to me mm. and I will critique you and give you feedback. Very nice. So it's going to be a nice. two-way two app. So we're really excited about it and that will be out very soon. I'm looking forward to the, the debut and checking it out. Um, maybe getting my kids to do it. So. Absolutely. I'm sure it's going to be fantastic, Paul. Everything you do is fantastic, man. Um, you know, the first time I met you, the first time I saw you, you know, I was just blown away by how you do things and I've never gotten tired of it. I love talking basketball with you. Uh, you're constantly learning, you're constantly watching and you're constantly growing and you give me all sorts of great ideas. So, man, thank you so much for what you do for everybody. Thanks so much. I appreciate the support and all the talks as well over the years. I truly appreciate it. All right, man. Thanks for hanging out. Thanks. See you now. All right, man. See you.